but but the main thing they wanted to do was infuse much more thoughtfully the idea of of sort of practice and impact and they infused specific projects that the students would undertake during their four years at WPI and specifically one that sits at the intersection of technology and society. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human. I am once again thrilled to have my guest on the show today, a person by the name of Lori Leshen, and she is the 16th president of the Worcester Polytechnic Institute, which turns out, I didn't know this, is one of America's first technological institutes, like top 10 kind of thing, Lori? It's third, third, third. Uh, STEM-based university in the U.S., RPI, MIT, and us. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. We're going to dig into a lot of things today, but let me give you a little bit more of her background. Lori is an accomplished space scientist, which I just said to her, something about her bio makes me jealous. That also makes me jealous. And she's been in the academic and the government service arena for over 20 years. She was the Dean of School of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Deputy Director of NASA's Exploration Systems Mission Directorate, Deputy Director for Science and Technology and Director of Science and Exploration at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She earned her PhD in geochemistry at Caltech, and she also serves in the Federal STEM Advisory Panel. She's won a slew of medals and awards and recognition. But the thing I love the most is that she has an asteroid named after her, 4922 Leshen. <laughs> Let's start there. I want to start there. How sure. do you do that? <laughs> well, so first of all, the most important thing to know when you have an asteroid named after you is that it's not going to hit Earth. This asteroid is way out there in the asteroid belt out there between Mars and Jupiter, and it's not going to come anywhere near the Earth. So nobody needs to worry about especially me, about 4922 Leshen, you know, causing any damage here at home. So that's, that's just important to know. It's an honorific that asteroids are one of the few things that they, in the solar system, they will name for living people. Most things, whether they be large craters or moons or other things, are named for people no longer with us or mythical gods and things like this. But asteroids, there are many, many thousands of asteroids and this one was discovered by a scientist and he gave a whole raft of them to the professional society of people who study meteorites called the Meteorological Society. And I'm one of those people. And because I had received an early career award from them, they also named an asteroid for me, which was really sweet. It's you have a uh, photo of it uh, on your mantelpiece. No, you know, no one's ever been there. It's it's far away. And we do know you can, you can Google this and find what's called the ephemeris or the orbit of any asteroids. You can actually look up the orbit of 4922 Leshen and figure out exactly where it is right now. I haven't checked it lately, but it's way out there in the far reaches of the asteroid belt. 
but we have lots of pieces of other asteroids, not, not mine, but lots of other ones that most of what falls to the earth as meteorites are pieces of asteroids. And they're fascinating objects because they are kind of left oh over God. from the beginning of the solar system. So they're witness to the birth of yeah. our sun and planets. Incredible. Well, speaking of orbits, how did you end up in the orbit of Worcester Polytechnic Institute? <laughs> Give us that story. Yeah, I won't tell you the whole long story, but but the short story is, look, I basically grew up on college campuses. I've been academic almost by birth. Mostly grew, I grew up in Arizona on, on the campus of Arizona State University and and had been on a very traditional academic path, you know, PhD, professor, getting tenure, all that stuff. And then I, and again, it's a longer story as to why, but I ended up ditching my tenure and going, joining the government. You mentioned I worked at NASA for six years in three different roles as a senior exec there and had the opportunity to run really large, complex organizations, to be involved in, you know, a dramatic transformation of, of our human space flight program. And, and that was amazing and, and gave me a lot of good leadership experience. But after six years being gone, I really missed the students. I missed the mission. And so I, I came back in as Dean at Rensselaer, Dean of Science, and then WPI, bless them, they found me. They were searching for a president and I wasn't really ready to leave my deanship, but they convinced me that it was the right match at the right moment. And they were mm-hmm. absolutely right. And it's the best decision I ever made. Let me, let me take a pause here for the audience. A couple of things I want to share. One is if you've listened to the show or read any of my stuff, you know that I believe that the, the way to solve humankind's current and future problems is on the back of continuing to innovate education at every level, K-12, higher ed, adult ed. So that's one belief I have. The second belief is that many of the institutions of higher education, not just in the United States, but around the world, are struggling to innovate struggling, frankly, to get out of their legacy notions and biases and move towards a more relevant, compelling value proposition. That's point one. Point two is Lori and I were introduced through a mutual friend and had breakfast. And I, truth be told, hadn't done my research on Worcester Polytech Institute. I've done a little bit on Lori, but not a lot on the university. And as we're sitting there having breakfast, and she began to tell me what WPI is doing, has done for many years, in fact, its approach to education. I was like, what? Because as compared with many of its peers, it's an outlier in a good way. And so I'm imagining that my what reaction was maybe part of your what reaction when you were first recruited for the job. Is that, is that true? Is that fair to say? It is true. And I will tell you, I knew a bit about WPI, but because actually Robert Goddard graduated from here, he's the father of modern rocketry. He basically invented rockets that we still use today, a hundred years ago. And, and I worked at Goddard Space Flight Center and I think like Greenbelt, Maryland and Worcester, Massachusetts are the two places in the country that still really know and remember who Robert Goddard was. And so since he went to school here, I was like, oh yeah, WPI, that's cool. Robert Goddard was from there. But, and I was working at RPI, a place that literally almost has the same exact name. And so when I started looking at WPI, I realized like, oh my gosh, like same, similar names, very different approaches. And again, RPI is a great school, but, but WPI, the way they approach STEM education, it's, and, and I'm not just making this up, literally last week, we had an accreditation, our once in a decade accreditation team visiting us who said, you know, you do 
you know, your approach to STEM education is, is distinctive and unique and it's the best in the country. So, wow. you know, it was, uh, it was a but, real thrill to hear that. I probably but, shouldn't be saying that. I'm probably not supposed to say what they told us, but anyway, <laughs> it was a great I was, to hear that they reaction. recognize our distinctiveness, which I know we'll talk about a bit more because it's been something that's been, it's part of WPI's founding. And then it was sort of reinvigorated 50 years ago and has been growing ever since. And uh, it's a great, yeah, it's a great platform from which yeah, to kind of change that, you're, that you care about. I want to dig into into why they had that reaction, and my and my reaction to what you, that statement was. Let's put it on the cover of the on the homepage, you know, like oh yeah, my no, God. no, we will. We just they, <laughs> their report; it won't be public for a while yet. So right, right, right. We'll say before um, they actually. One you know, of my one of my things, and I was actually, as you know, I'm writing this book, and and a lot of a lot of it, I reference my belief that for any system, and as a scientist, you can probably refute this, or I don't know what, but. I have this whole thing about the integrity of a system is largely predicated on the clarity of the intention of the system and then how well the system delivers against that intention. And intention is just my word for outcomes, deliverables, consequences, whatever. And so I'd love to hear a little bit. And one of my frustrations in parts of the education system is what I'll call the the fuzziness of the intentions. And, and, and I think, how can the system be any good if if the entity isn't clear about what it is it's actually after for the students, for the graduates, whatever. So I just love to hear before we get into the, how you guys do it and that distinction that the accrediting body was talking about kind of to the start with the, why you do it, the way you do it, you know, what is the, what is it that you're after here that maybe other universities aren't necessarily so, you know, honed in on? Yeah, I'm super glad you asked, actually, because we literally just spent like, okay, two years because it's academia and everything takes two years, but but kind of having a conversation literally called why we do this work, right? That's great. And, and that's great. it. And, and, and it's resulting in a total change of our mission statement since the last time it was updated was sometime in the mid to late 80s. And it was about, I don't know, a page long and very... Right. Not a little muddled. Right. And right. so we're, we're literally in a couple of weeks, our board will vote on an updated mission statement for the institution. And it is. So why do we do this work? One, to transform lives. We know that a WPI education has major impact on our students and on their ability to lift themselves and their families over their lives. It also transforms the lives of people that they impact through their work. So that's first. Second, and this one is sort of at the core of the way we approach education, which is about translating knowledge into action to impact global challenges. So it's not just good enough to say, understand climate change and that it's important. But the question is, how do you take that knowledge and actually make impact in the world? Mm -hmm. So make make positive change. And then the third is about revolutionizing STEM. So taking what we've learned and, and the way we approach this, which we'll talk about more later and helping other institutions do things differently. And also making sure that the STEM that we're doing is inclusive of everyone. So it's not just people who have traditionally had access to great STEM education, but that in fact, everyone needs to be a part of, of the solutions that STEM done right can, uh, can offer. I gotta tell so that's you that. sort of why we that's why we do this work. So small goals, transforming lives, revolutionizing STEM, and translating knowledge into action to address global challenges. So, all right. what are you going to do after Friday when you're all yeah, done? Yeah, I don't know. 
you know, we'll get that done. Check, check. No, it's, but I think you're, I so agree with you, Chris, that this, you have to have a big aspiration. You have to have inspiring goals. You have to embrace, embrace going big or what's, what's the point, right? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, a couple, one thing is I got goosebumps when you started talking about transforming lives, like legit. So, so that also reflects that I think humans, all humans want what I call a motivating context. And, you know, the problem, not to disparage the mission statement written in the 80s, but it's common for, I think, most institutions and frankly, a lot of corporations, is that a run-on sentence has zero chance of eliciting goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. You know, the multi-paragraph, let's yeah. accommodate every stakeholder, every opinion, you know, and that will like, make sure nobody complains versus a focus statement that is both relevant to them to the current day and resonant with the audience, all, all the audiences. I just commend you for getting to that level of clarity. And then the last thing I'd say is you've got to be able to remember it. Like you, Lori, to the audience, Lori wasn't looking at a piece of paper. She was telling me those oh, three no, I things. Got <laughs> I got to get everybody else to get it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's an argument to be made that it should just be to transform lives. That should be our mission, right? You could argue that that's the, that's short, that's enough. Right. And then how you do that, the sort of critical capacities underneath that are X, Y, and Z, including, including the, I also want to just quickly talk about, and we'll get to like how you do this stuff, but like, the knowledge into action thing appears to me as an amateur observer of the education space. Although I found something online the other day called the Delors Report, which was from 1996, something done by the European Commission to examine how education was structured, presumably in Europe. Yeah, yeah. They did and, go through some research. Yeah, yeah. And they came up with these four pillars. And one of them, I think, was very much around this idea of of activating knowledge or, you know, similar sort of, but so why do you, why do you think, why do you think that all of a sudden is becoming not de rigueur, but, you know, more and more institutions are, are realizing got to get out of the theory and into the reality. What do you think, do you have a sense of like what's under underpinning that or motivating that or. So I will say, so two things, one, so at WPI, actually our founding motto is theory and practice. So like from 150 years ago, they were always focused from the time of our founding. We've had companies embedded with us where students were go taking what they learned in the classroom, going into the shops and doing hands-on work, which is like unheard of 150 years ago. But that being said, when I got here, it was still very focused on we teach the theory and we teach the practice. And I tried to bring, you know, with, with a lot of discussion with others, this didn't just come out of my brain, um, this idea of theory, practice, and impact. And, and how is it that we can take that practice and ensure it's aligned with public good or community good or value creation, whatever, wherever the impact might be. And it was interesting because at first, I classic example of, of kind of organizational development in action. And first I was sort of hearing back from say faculty, like, well, what really matters only is the impact on the student. It's an educational experience. And I said, really? Because, you know, I could just imagine that perhaps the educational experience might be better if the project the student was working on had a higher impact in the community in which they're working than a lower impact. Could you imagine that that might actually impact 
quality of the educational experience. And so they went off and thought about it. And sure enough, within about 18 months, they were coming back and going, okay, so, you know, we have this idea. We think we should be trying to measure our impact in the broader world. <laughs> and it was just a great moment of like, oh, some of them got through and they're coming back, you know, with it, making it their own, which is awesome, right? That's what we all, what we all want as leaders is for organizations to make ideas their own. And so even here, where we have 150 years of DNA around theory and practice, it takes a little, it takes a conscious effort. And I think now people are realizing more and more that the broader impacts of our work, whether that's research in the lab or teaching in the classroom, are, are important. And so I think there's, so again, this is a little bit philosophical, but it did used to be that just education in and of itself was thought to be a public good, right? And now it's viewed much more as a private good, something an individual pays for and gets. And so in some ways, I think this transition to thinking about broader impacts is a way for education to try to get back to this place where their work is considered a public good. And so in some ways you could say that's kind of sad, right? But in other ways, I think it's important because too often, you know, the reason they call it the ivory tower, it's, it can be real, right? Institutions of higher education can be disconnected from communities, from reality, from real impact. And, and the more that we can bridge that gap, the better educators will be. So that was kind of a long answer. No, no, no. I love that answer. I mean, it's very, and I'm sorry to make this a little bit about me, but it's really about like me today, because I was writing today on my book and I was writing about the need to overhaul, not just the education system, but the healthcare system and the finance system, all the systems that underpin our, our existence to better, better, to be more adaptive, to be more integrative, to be more accessible. And one of my points is that everything is connected to everything. And these, these silos, ivory towers, in the case of education, hospital, you know, these institutions have got to understand that they are part of the connected tissue of the society and it's they have to proactively create bridges into into right that's how you create value that's how they they matter how we matter in education and by the way as my friends in education would say they're not silos they're cylinders of excellence (laughs) okay thank you for the clarity That's hilarious. No, I believe with you, break them down. And, and by the way, if that were easy, it'd be done already, right? I mean, complex, highly complex, highly, you know, mature systems are very hard to change. And so, and, and oh, by the way, those systems were built at a time when they were serving a population that's quite different than the population we have today. And there's whole issues around equity and inclusion that that are served by reforming those systems as well. I think there's also this, this because I thought about the education system and the, um, my daughter works at a large hospital in downtown Boston that shall go nameless. And, um, <laughs> you know, the idea of, of hyper, hyper vertical experts within a system, call it a professor, call it a yeah. doctor. Yeah. And that the nature of their craft is such that, horizontal engagement is not like natural. It's it's not incentivized. It's not. And so building a 
sort of a hub, a nodal system that is connected. Right. Everything is connected. A web, a like web, a web, for example. Juxtaposed yeah. with what yeah. the institution has held up is, is hyper vertical expertise. Right. Like you're the world's best brain surgeon. Just do that. Right. And all the other stuff is peripheral. You know, it's not to say we don't need that, right? We need those folks. We do. And we need bridgers. We need we need collaborators. We need, you know, cross cutters as well. And and right. how do we think about training a lot more of those folks? That's where interdisciplinary science really comes into play. Uh, you know, integrate integrative learning, convergence right. is the word that's being used a lot these days in research kind of yeah. Across areas, it's a well, challenge. Well, let's right? use that as our bridge to talking about how you how you guys do what you do. Sure. Like when you first showed okay. up and what you've been doing since. Yeah, so I'll go back just slightly further. 51, 51 years ago or so, the faculty at WPI actually threw out the entire curriculum and replaced it with something they called the WPI plan, which changed almost every aspect of, of what they were trying to do. It changed the academic calendar. It changed the grading system. It was classic 1970, kind of end of the 60s overhaul where like no grades and you know all this stuff. And so some of that has not survived. We have grades, although you can't fail a class at WPI. It turns out you, if you, we want to encourage students to take risks. And if you try something that maybe you're not quite ready for and you don't achieve a C or above, the class is not recorded on your transcript. So that's that's a pretty cool thing. Again, encouraging that risk-taking. But, but the main thing they wanted to do was infuse much more thoughtfully the idea of, of sort of practice and impact. And they infused specific projects that the students would undertake during their four years at WPI. And specifically one that sits at the intersection of technology and society where the students would work in teams across majors, so interdisciplinary teams, and would work on a real world problem that again sat at this intersection of technology and society. And, and then they inserted a major project as well, a kind of a capstone project, which today are common in engineering, but then were not as common. And then they made all the other classes seven weeks and all this other stuff. But but it was very interesting. So they mostly just wanted to insert this, this opportunity for intensive hands-on work. And now as you fast forward, say 40 years, well, actually fast forward to now. So that is manifesting itself in our curriculum in two major ways. One is this, this junior year project, this technology and society project, what we call the IQP, and I won't get you into all the alphabet soup are most often done at project center sites all over the world. We have sites in 30 countries where students travel in groups of 24, six teams of four, and two faculty go with them. And we work with local sponsors in on every continent except Antarctica, although that would be a fun one. we got to add that. <laughs> I want one on the space station. I want a project center up there. And so our students go into these communities and solve real world problems for real world sponsors and everything from working with museums or universities, a lot of not-for-profits and government agencies, students work with, you know, healthcare providers in the north of India in the, in the foothills of the Himalayas or on beach plastic pollution on beaches in Melbourne, Australia, or on food security in New Zealand for indigenous people in New Zealand. And we also have project centers, by the way, right here in Worcester, one in Boston, one in Bar Harbor, Maine, on Nantucket. Our students will be there next term. So local and global impact. And so that's been the manifestation of that. And when I arrived at WPI seven and a half years ago, about 
60, 62% of our students were doing one of their projects at one of these off-campus sites. And we had just gotten, we just done an intensive research study with our alumni that showed the incredible impact of projects overall, but specifically for the students who had that experience off-campus embedded in another community where they could see the real impact of their work. Impact on those students, again, their learning was off the charts. And, and 10 years later, they would look back and say, oh my gosh, I'm the leader I am today because of that experience, right? And so when I arrived here, they had just gotten that research and I said, well, listen, we've got to then eliminate any barriers to any student who wants to, should be able to do an off-campus project. So we've now gone from 60% to 90% of our students doing at least one of their projects at an off-campus site. Obviously, COVID has thrown a little bit of a wrench into that, mm-hmm. but we're, we're getting back to traveling this year. And so we, for example, we put a $5,000 global scholarship in for every student so that finances were not a barrier. We've expanded the number of centers and sites. And, and it's just, it's an extraordinary thing. So that's one thing that happened is we've, we've grown the global projects part of the program. All the students did projects, but now they can all do them at these sites around the world. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, they just put these projects in as a couple of, of the courses, but 50 years later, because faculty can see the value that project-based hands-on real-world problem-based learning has for students, we now have measured, and, and something like two-thirds of all of our other courses are project-based now. So it's sort of infected the rest of the, the curriculum. So our students are, are doing team-based projects in almost every class that they have. And And our faculty pride themselves on being experts in this high impact educational practice, which is about learning through projects. And as we like to say around here, life is projects, right? So um, coming out of here with the belief, and it's a sincere belief, even though I don't think it's quite true that they can solve any problem in seven weeks. (laughs) (laughs) We'll probably get close. A bit of confidence we could all use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one thing though, project-based learning thing, which I want to talk a little bit more about, and, yeah. but also the, the just sort of going out into the real world and yeah. applying what you've learned in the classroom into a real-life problem with real-life people. I imagine many of these are very sort of hyper-local context yeah. situations. Yeah. One of my uh, many expressions, which is completely probably unfounded, but it seems possibly right, is if you don't feel it, you don't really learn it. Yeah. And again, I'm not sure that knowing your background in academic, like that's probably not true, but some level it's a little true. That it is, it, you don't experience it. You yeah. Don't, if you don't feel right, it, like if you don't the experience right. and, and I can tell you story after story of our students and the experiences that they have had and, and how it has been transformational for, for them, whether it was, you know, one team we had working in Cape Town, South Africa, in actually a battered woman's home shelter, helping them solve a bunch of different problems. But the team was like three women and a guy. And we specifically asked the guy, like, what, how was that for you? And, and like, he'll never be the same. It was a very low tech project. In the end, they had all these plans with CAD models and everything. And in the end, they scribbled things on sticky notes on the walls with these women to figure out how they could help support them more. But he, he said, I've just a perspective on the world I've never had before. And, and one other quick example I'll share is 
Um, and these are, by the way, are all from, we give an award every year, look at last year's projects and give an award for the, the best one of these projects that faculty sort of nominate the teams and such. And we review them and it's impossible to choose, but we always choose one. One of the winners was from right here in Worcester, Mass. We also work in Worcester, England, by the way, our sister city in Worcester, England, but, but right here in Worcester, Mass, where our students made an app to help support those suffering from homelessness and, and drug addiction with resources, just easy access to resources. And, and they ended up going to all these group kind of therapy sessions with folks who were struggling with addiction and just kind of getting to know these members of our own community here in Worcester. And, and the team at the, you know, at the event where we were celebrating these teams, the mother of one of the students came up to me crying. And she said, you know what, my, my son was one of those kids that in high school was in his room on his computer, either playing games or coding and just was not embedded with people. And to see him now, I would never have believed that he's the person he is now. He's out there now in the community, so passionate about this issue. And she said, I just, I would never have believed it. And it's, and it's been transformational. That's the kind of stuff that keeps you going here every well, single day. And that just got the goosebumps back, you know, it's like, oh my God, transforming lives that transform lives. Like, That's wow. what we need, right? It's wow. not just about how much money you can make, which by the way, also comes out well, but, but it's about how you approach problem solving and how you think about who you're solving problems for, right? You cannot go and work on a problem like that and approach any project in the same way. You're going to go build a bridge. Guess what? When you've done a problem around, you've solved a problem around drug addiction, all of a sudden, you're probably asking different questions about the bridge you're building, right? Who's this going to impact and how is it going to empower people? And so it's that bridge, you know, building a bridge literally or, or figuratively between people and solutions, right? And, yeah. and I know you care about this. This is, it's about inserting the human into the yeah. equation. And that's yeah. what it's all about. The humanity of this, of the technologists, but also the people it's impacting. This, this, I don't know if this is a fair, unfair question, but uh, I have another phrase I use, which is the idea of whole human development. Mm. All of us have this responsibility, whether it's a child, a student, a peer, you know, how do we support each other in the, in the, in the development of, of every dimension of self, not just the functional? How, how does the school, you know, in transforming lives, how does the school approach the sort of outside the the classroom thing in a way yeah. of supporting the, the learner? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And because if you think about it, you know, so much of our time and energy goes into thinking about curriculum and classes and, you know, what's happening. And of course, it's super important and faculty are really at the core of the institution. They're the intellectual core, right? But students spend like 80% of their time outside the classroom. Right, so right, right. It's, right. Uh, it's a really important piece, especially for us, you know, and not all colleges have, not everybody in college has the luxury to be at a, a residential college where, which we are. And, and so we really do think about the whole student experience and have just amazing sets of programs. So the way it shows up is it very much like our curriculum. It's very student driven. Our student, I mean, for the size of our institution, we have like 250 clubs and organizations, which is way too, it's like a lot for a lot of our size, but it's, you know, you want to have a cheese club. Great. Start a cheese club or the, the rocketry club or the outdoor club or cosplay or dungeons and dragons, whatever it might be. You can find your people. And then I think the other thing we really do is train them and we're doing more and more of this, how to look out for one another. Mm. 
And and the nice thing here, and you hear about other institutions where it really is cutthroat. People Mm -hmm. were telling me the other day about another institution where if someone accidentally left a notebook in class, somebody else would throw it away. Like, oh my Mm. God, are you kidding? (laughs) Mm. That is not the way it is here. Here, students succeed together. They support one another. And and it really is like that. And, And you can feel it when you're on this campus. I say it's a bit like Hogwarts around here. They all are. Really supportive of each other, and and I'll tell you, seven week terms are awesome for that sort of focus and intensity. And there's a lot of focus and intensity, and so we have to make sure that we're supporting wellness, supporting the whole student. That's a conversation we're in right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of stress coming out of COVID and student communities, and we have to move away from just treating mental health symptoms when they emerge to creating a culture of wellness. What does well WPI look like? And we got work to do there. I mean, I think good news is, you know, nobody's perfect. We've got, there's, there's lots of opportunities for us to continue to grow and improve as an institution. And as we do that, you build those dimensions, those multidimensional humans. They're not just tech geeks right. here, right? Even though we're very proud tech geeks here, but how do you turn folks into complete people? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting your mention of COVID and how I've written about this as well, that that it ex- somebody asked me like what did covid change and i said i'm not sure what it changed all i what i do know is it exposed truths that have been there for a while and i think i think this sort of embrace of the of the human ourself as human the other as human the rest of humankind is is one of those truths that i think i think more and more of us see for sure yeah it's it's so you know we, we talk here about the sort of basics of self-care, you know, eat well, sleep enough and sleep enough is always an issue for our students. They need to mm-hmm. sleep enough, get a little exercise. And then social connection is the fourth one. And COVID really cramped our, everybody's style mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of social connection. And there is, there's going to be a wellness deficit coming mm-hmm. out of this moment. And Absolutely. we need to, and that's about human connection. And so if that you know, if we can learn from that and try and recover from it in ways that are productive as society, I think it'll help everybody an awful lot. And that's a perfect segue to the question of connection and collaboration across institutions in your yeah. in, in the higher education space. I mean, we much has been written about, I mean, going back to some of Clay Christensen's work yeah. about, you know, if if the industry doesn't innovate, you know, more and more colleges and universities will end up being out of business. More and more parents, I think, are becoming more vocal. More and more employers are becoming more vocal, expressing a different expectation. They want students to emerge better equipped to to, to deal with the, the world of today. How, what are you seeing and, and or doing, able to do vis-a-vis peer-to-peer sharing? Yeah. Like how, either how are you benefiting from what others are doing or how are others benefiting from what Worcester Polytech is doing? Yeah. So a couple of things we're, so about five years ago, we started maybe six now, what we call the center for project-based learning at WPI, which is all about taking what we've learned over half a century of, of sort of perfecting and growing and doing great hands-on learning and sharing some of our secret sauce with others, right? Yes, it is a, it's a competitive advantage in some ways. And so I had to 
you know, keep people a little bit calm that this wasn't kind of giving away the secret sauce. But the truth is, you know, we're an institution of 7,000 students here and there are 20 million students in higher ed in this country. We need more of them to, right, to right. get what we have. And so we've worked with, we offer summer institutes on project-based learning. We offer consulting to other universities. We collaborate in all kinds of different ways, We're putting out best practices and things. We've collaborated in the last six years with I think 160 other universities, collectively reaching, well, let's say one and a half million students, right? Like serving that, you know, again, not that every student's life is going to be transformed by us working with some subset of faculty at an institution, but it's interesting to see who's coming, right? So there are some other STEM institutions, but a lot of it is community colleges, HBCUs, minority serving institutions, really looking for tools they can use to help reach and transform the lives of, of their very diverse student bodies, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're really proud of that work and are, can, and are working on how we ramp that up even further. Mm-hmm. And, and it gives it, our own faculty a chance to share their expertise, which is which is great for them. It's great for WPI because it, it kind of gets our brand out there a bit more. But it's also provided the opportunity for some of our faculty who have really made a career out of innovating education, the chance to disseminate some of that knowledge. And it's so interesting. You know, one of the things that higher education is does not very well is we're not great at rewarding and valuing, rewarding what we value, right? Like figuring out what we value and then rewarding that. So, you know, great innovative teaching is not always the highest thing on the list when people come up for tenure, right? It's about research or Hmm. other things. And, And again, that is part of the education system, the system of higher education that is a bit broken, that our, our advancement systems and reward systems are out of whack with what we say we value. And so, we at WPI actually have overhauled those systems in my time here. We've changed our criteria for promotion of faculty. We've created teaching paths to tenure. So not a research path, but a pure teaching path. So that because again, we say we care about education of students. Well, how do we show that? Right. So I think this is another thing that we're doing where we're going to set an example for other institutions. And I've been working a lot with the national academies on a couple of different convenings there where we're able to talk about about how we can better in you know, changing the system of higher ed to align our advancement yeah. and reward systems with, with our values. So there's a lot. It, yeah, there yeah there's a lot. I mean, just to underscore the, this issue of incentive, I think yeah, that's at the center yes. of almost everything, right? Like it, people do what benefits them, not even, not even through the lens of selfishness, but just that's the primal way, right? Like, yeah. And so if the incentives aren't aligned, you're not going to get innovation. You're not going to get collaboration. You're not going to get a lot, a lot of things. And, and so I think it's, it's excellent that you're, you're looking at that, at that one. Right. Piece I mean, really. the first step is exactly what you said, which is you got to know where you're trying to go. Right. Like if you, if you don't know what you value, then you can't build a system to align incentives with it. But if you actually can articulate that and then build your systems to support that, it's, that's the only way things change. Well, and, and as you go to your mission, you know, this idea of transforming lives almost necessarily is saying in order to do that, we too must be transformative. Yep. So like what we're teaching, how we're teaching it, 
and each of us as individuals, as professor, as an administrator, if we don't transform, our ability to help them transform is somewhat mitigated. Yeah, um, I think, you know, you can, a lot of universities talk about, we want our students to go out and change the world. And our, my whole thing is if, if you want students to change the world, you have to literally teach them how to do it while they're students. You can't just expect them to figure that out based on a bunch of equations you've thrown at them or, or knowledge you've imparted. You've got to do it through practice, through practice of going out and changing the world. And my version of that is if you want to teach them to change the world, then that requires them learning to be adaptive, which requires you being adaptive to teach them how to be adaptive. Like, you bet. You, you, you know, the, the knee bone has to connect to the shin bone or something. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I, the way I, we've always done it isn't always going to be the way we need to do it. And oh, by the way, STEM skills are aging out faster than ever before. So what you were saying about lifelong learning is essential. And yeah, we got to keep it going. We got to change. So it's amazing. Every time I'm like, I want to ask her this, you you provide a perfect segue. So talk to me about STEM. Talk to me a little about its importance, but I think most everybody understands its importance to the world and certainly to this country. Talk to me about the progress being made and or the progress not being made and what WPI and maybe others are doing about it. Just give me a a little STEM. A little STEM vibe. So, I mean, science, technology, engineering, math, and, you know, I don't, I don't tend to call it by its initials, by the, by what the initials stand for anymore. STEM is sort of a word almost of its own, meaning sort of the technological and scientific solutions to challenges. It's more important than ever. I mean, ask anyone who got a vaccine or who's trying to fight climate change and all these things. And I mean, like all of the major issues of our time are have intersection with STEM. And by the way, more and more jobs have intersection with STEM, even if they're not traditional STEM jobs. You know, if you're a marketer anymore, you better be a little bit of a data scientist, if you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And almost no, no important problems are purely STEM problems. So that's where it gets really interesting, right? Because in fact, the most interesting problems are problems that are intersectional between STEM technology and, and, and humans, because you can't get the solutions right if you don't have the human part of the dimension, the, so, the social, societal, policy, human, whichever dimension of that you might want to look at. So STEM is really still critically important, and it's not the only important thing. And so trying to think about STEM professionals of the future, giving them those skills of being well-rounded, grounded in, in humans and in business and in other spheres that they're going to interact and recognizing that while STEM professionals, incredibly high demand, still incredibly high demand, and they all get jobs getting out of here and they you know, make a lot of money and they do very well, but their other challenge right now in this, in these fields is how fast they are changing machine learning, AI, data science, smart buildings, smart, everything, internet of things, robotics, these things are moving at an incredible clip. And therefore, you know, think about the four years between when you walk in the door and you cross the stage at graduation, you know, some of your skills might already be obsolete, right? And so this idea, and to me, this is the the big idea about where education needs to go is we got to break out of this four years and you're done. And then you go work for a while and then you retire. And it's very linear thinking, right? It's got to be much more dipping in and out of education over time. I would still argue that 
the foundation of a four-year degree is pretty important for most people, but, but in some cases you can even break that up and do it over time. Again, because of all those things that happen outside the classroom where the human development comes into place, a lot of 18-year-olds aren't quite ready to jump out into mm-hmm. the, to the full world, but, but it certainly can't be the end-all be-all, especially in STEM. And so how do we think differently about educating folks over their lives? And as much as I would love to say it's like lifelong learning as if it's a, you know, just a personal good and growth that people want to do. No, to get to my next job, yeah. I, need, I need to learn more to get it's it's really essential to advance in our careers. And so we got to figure out how we serve that better through through employers to individuals, not always in chunks of master's degree size you know, lots of this talk about stackable credentials and such is about that. And I don't think we have it nearly right yet. We've got a lot of work to do there. And it's going to be an exciting decade ahead because of that. It's funny. Again, I feel like we're so in the same vibe zone or something, writing this morning about how we change these systems. And one is this, they've all got to be much more adaptive They've got to be much more integrative, not just within the system, across systems, but mm-hmm. but that accessible. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one that I literally was writing to right before we got on this call was about changing the time horizon. Mm-hmm. That education looks at it as K-12 and maybe four more years and maybe two more years. Yeah. And like, no, no, no. It has to look at it forever. You know, like life. Yeah. It's, it's life. And healthcare looks at it as time horizon of I'm going to, I'm going to fix what ails you. And then you're going to go out and like, not, I'm not looking at your life. I'm looking at a moment in time. And, and, and so, you know, yeah, it's health versus sickness, right? Yeah, exactly. Get it from health perspective. It's a different time horizon than treating an illness, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Same for education. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's not easy by the way, because again, these systems are, are not only, I mean, we're highly regulated industries, healthcare and education, both highly regulated through accreditation and things and, and innovating within those systems is a challenge. And so we've got, I think the, this is where private sector partners can be really helpful and lots of ed tech startups these days, really exciting moments and to see the ideas that are popping up and the way that some private sector companies are helping to facilitate these changes. I think it's, I think it's exciting. Actually, that's a, I think a great, maybe last area to talk about for a couple of minutes. I'm mindful of we have five minutes left. Talk to me about about what WPI does in the entrepreneurship space. Like for those, you yeah. know, and I, I came from the Harvard Innovation Lab, which you know, and, and that was a, effectively an incubator of sorts for Harvard yeah. student and Harvard alumni startups. We had hundreds every semester. Are you seeing that same level of interest in, in the startup thing? We're seeing a huge trend in that direction. I would say we're not quite there. So, you know, Harvard, I don't know how much research funding Harvard has a, a year, but it's gigantic. WPI has, our research funding has doubled in the last four years, but it's still small compared to places like Harvard and MIT. And a lot of the spinouts come from sort of faculty, grad student research. And so we are seeing more and more of those. And we've set records last few years for licenses and patents and disclosures and all that stuff. And interestingly, we're having much more intentional conversations about the thousand projects a year we do at WPI and where those might be able to be carried forward more and more seeing students interested in starting, say, a nonprofit about their 
you know, their freshman year project about supplying menstrual products to girls in rural India, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's whatever it might be. You can just see when they've got that spark and it's like, you're not going to let this go at the end of the seven week term. Are you, you're going to carry this forward. And so we're building out the infrastructure to help support those students, things like maybe a fellowship year after they graduate to be able to try and get their venture started and lots of support from alumni who are advising them. And so it's, it's on the rise here. It's not even close to mature yet. But again, as you think about making broader impact about transforming lives, about translating knowledge to action, you know, it's got to be right in the heart of our, of our strategy. Right. Right. So that's, that's, again, is a perfect segue um, to the concluding question. So what's funny, so in writing this book, my wife, Kate, hopefully you'll meet her one day. (laughs) She doesn't want to read my book. (laughs) (laughs) And she says, it's kind of depressing. Oh, I was going to say, she thinks it's too depressing. Dystopian future. And, ah. <laughs> you know, I think I think we're all many of us are like, whoa, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Yeah. Uh, macro, micro, global, local. It can be, and particularly in COVID. I mean, I was two steps away from despondent. I mean, yeah. overwhelming. It can and, be overwhelming. And so in your position, seeing 7,000 students do what they do, seeing what your institution is doing. Can you give can you give the listeners what what fuels your hope? Yeah. Our students fuel my hope every day. And, and whenever I'm whenever I'm having a bad day or whenever anybody around me expresses hopelessness, I invite them to come to our campus for a day because this generation is so committed to solving important problems and doing it in new ways and doing it together collaboratively at a level that, and in a way that's inclusive, in a way that hasn't been the case in prior generations. And, and it just, it gives me a ton, a ton of hope. So look to look no further than, than young people in this generation, especially those who are choosing to study STEM, I think, because again, they know it's a, it can be a tool for good. And we're trying to make sure that that's the case in the way we educate them here at WPI. And there's no better way to end. So thank you, Lori, for that was like the fastest 45 minute conversation. (laughs) It was really fun. And and thank you. And thank WPI and thank all, all the faculty and administrators for having the courage to step away from the norm and, and frankly, do what's right, not just by the students, but by society. We need more of this in the world. And uh, we're very, very grateful for you. Thanks, Chris. It was fun. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.